Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the top-selling studio album of 1974 in the United Kingdom and Australia, in addition to the album that revitalized Paul McCartney's critical standing, Band on the Run. Released 5th December 1973 in the U.S., 7th December 1973 in the U.K., some argue that this is the best Paul McCartney solo album, period. Before we dive into the album, I figure we take it back to 1972 November for Live and Let Die, the single that was released the 1st of June 1973 in the U.K. and the 18th of June 1973 in the U.S., the very famous James Bond theme song. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say live and let live You know you did, you know you did, you know you did But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you Live and let die Chris, how do you feel about Live and Let Die? You know, Live and Let Die was released right on the heels of Red Rose Speedway. Red Rose Speedway came out in May, Live and Let Die came out in June. And I could imagine that it made a nice contrast to Red Rose Speedway. It's a bit edgier. It's got a bit more rock and roll in it. It's heavily orchestrated. I'm not a big fan of this song myself. Never have been. Right. But I think there are some very notable qualities here. I think that the orchestrations by George Martin make it sound really impressive. I love the structure of the song. I love the sweet structure. We've talked about that a lot with Paul. This was McCartney's third such track in the 70s. Uncle Albert and Admiral Halsey was, of course, a mini suite. We have the medley on side two of Red Rose Speedway. Emboldened by that, Paul went ahead with Live and Let Die. He says in an interview that he was inspired by the fact that he was writing film music, that he thought he could therefore use different tempos and different sections and that that would be acceptable in that genre. He'd already done it in his own genre, but I'm glad he did it here. I think it's by far the most interesting thing about the song. Yeah. If Paul hadn't done a lot of the Abbey Road medley or the Red Row Speedway medley or really anything on Ram, I don't know if he would have been able to come up with Live and Let Die.
I love the fact that he's back with George Martin, so there is like an added intensity or gravitas to the whole track. You know, a couple interesting things I read about this is that Saltzman, the guy who, one of the men, Harry Saltzman, who produced the James Bond movies with Cubby Broccoli, previously rejected the chance to produce A Hard Day's Night. And so he decided to not make the same mistake twice and agreed to meet with Paul to see if Paul would write the song. And Paul McCartney, having been in the Beatles, sort of fancied himself as like a James Bond type. He would like go to the casinos in London and wearing a tux. So you hear all the fun and the joy that Paul's having singing that song, maybe reliving a bit of the Beatle days with George Martin by his side. On a Saturday in October 1972, Paul got himself a copy of Live and Let Die, the Ian Fleming novel, and he read the book from cover to cover in one day. And then the following day, that Sunday, he wrote the whole song. It's amazing. Input one day, output the next day, and you get Live and Let Die, a song that he still plays in concert to present day. Now, didn't Linda have a little input on the what does it matter to you part, the sort of reggae section? Yeah, well, that's that's. I think the, she worked on that, yeah. That's what they say. Did Linda McCartney uh-huh. actually fully write the bridge? Who knows? I, I don't know if she went away herself, wrote it, and brought it to Paul. I bet they wrote it together, and I bet she's responsible for the lyric. Yeah, another of those lying in bed things, maybe. Exactly. Here's the line. Do you think this would work in the song? Paul, oh, that's great. That's amazing. Let's go and do it. Live and Let Die is a beloved song. My problem with it is that the fragments don't add up to much. I've never read the novel, so maybe I'd understand if I read the novel. Eh, I don't know. But the fragments don't seem to add up to much. And I find the the pastichiness of the sort of spy music, orchestral spy music part, mm-hmm. I find it really corny. It, does, it just doesn't work for me. That's yeah, that's a very personal take on it. It's just never been a favorite. Yeah, well, then, so you don't like the version done by Guns N' Roses and what was, what, the 80s then? I, I take don't, it. I don't like any, any version. <laughs> and I have a question about the lyrics, actually. I've always wondered this. So I've always rationalized it as um, this ever-changing world in which, and here's my, my version. My version is we're living, living, you know, with an apostrophe instead of a G. World in which we're living is what I'd like it to be. Sounds like he says world in which we live in. But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in a This is, would be dumb. Well, yes, that is dumb. It's widely debated whether... Paul said the world in which we live in or the world in which we are living being we're as the contraction. Paul in interviews these days says, oh, I'm saying we're living. I don't know if he is. I think he is singing in which we live in. And it's a bit of a rewrite to history. I'm okay with it because I've made that rewrite myself. Exactly. And I think he sings I just choose to hear that when I listen to the song. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I hate to bring up another Dave Barry reference, but I'm going to do it right now. In that same book that I had mentioned in the last podcast, Dave talks about this song and how stupid this lyric is and how redundant it is. He says, uh, step up, Sir Paul, to receive your certification of redundancy certificate or something for this line. <laughs> the world <laughs> in which we live in... 
I choose to believe that he wouldn't make that particular error. I'm going to go with my rationalized version and Paul's, Paul's retro rewrite. So that's how I choose to hear it. I choose to hear it that way, too. Speaking of the, the vocal, the vocal was done in two to three takes for the whole track. And like My Love on Red Rose Speedway, this thing was done live with a 40-piece orchestra in a matter of hours. Yeah, and it's another fine vocal, too. Especially that high, I don't know what note he sings, but that high note he hangs on in, after the bridge. Right. Hell, I think he's singing. Give the other fellow hell. Unbelievable. So this track made it to number nine in the UK and number two in the US. Anytime Paul's songs get to number two, I always start digging in the charts. I wanted to know what songs beat Paul to number one. And I actually have them for you today. So the Morning After by Maureen McGovern, August 11th, 1973, was number one over Live and Let Die. It's from the movie The Poseidon Adventure. That's right. So two movie tracks fighting each other, but The Morning After won. And then the other, almost hard to believe, is Touch Me in the Morning by Diana Ross, the 18th of August in 73. This was the number one song in the United States over Live and Let Die. But number two ain't bad. A lot of soft rock in the air. Lots of soft rock in the air. So the flip side to this record was I Lie Around, yes? Yes. And we've touched on I Lie Around We touched on it in our Ram podcast, and I think we must have mentioned it in our 1972 roundup. It's a pretty good song, actually, and it has a good Ram feel to it. I like the song a lot. I like Denny Lane's vocal. I like Paul McCartney's octave vocal at the end. Yes. So long. Bye-bye. It was fun. The guitar work in like, I think it's the second or third verse, the stuff that kind of mimics the bass or pushes the verse along is, is fantastic. It could have easily yeah. made its way on Band on the Run. It's okay that it's not though. Do you think it would have had a good place on Ram? Ram it would have been okay on too. I think there are stronger songs than I Lie Around though that made it onto Ram. I think a slightly loopier version of I Lie Around might work on Ram. You know, something a little more over the top. The version we get in 73 really starts to sound like a Wings record. Yeah. Which makes sense. We've already heard Ram material on Red Rose Speedway, so Ram material's been woven into early wings. I'm okay with how it ended up, historically. I don't mind that this one's a B-side. The long intro with Paul yelling about diving in the in the lake, and then the, the actual sound effects, like, <laughs> it's a bit long. It's a bit, it's a it's, bit goofy. It's really an ideal B-side. This is what we want from a B-side. This is it right here. This is one of the five-star Paul McCartney B-sides. It does exactly its job. So that brings us to Helen Wheels. Helen Wheels, the song that was a single before Band on the Run, but ended up included on Band on the Run in the United States.
let's just give you a few facts here. It was released as a single October 26, 1973, with the B-side as Country Dreamer. It made it to number 10 in the U.S. and number 12 in the U.K. It's a song about Paul's Land Rover and the drive he took from London to Scotland. Not a bad song at all. I think it's a get back type song, right? Yes, in the get back prototype style, absolutely. Yeah, we'll hear this again with Junior's Farm and with Girls' School. It's this sort of uh, up-tempo, you know, rock blues style that McCartney uses to, to great effect pretty much every time. He's very good at this. I don't know much about the lyrics on this one. Pretty obscure references throughout. Very English. Yeah, it's all of the signs he saw on the drive, and they're like his old friends. I quite like the promotional video that comes with this song, if you can find that on YouTube. One of Paul's, I'd say, better promotional videos from this period of the 70s. It's a great video. Yeah, it's a really good video. I love it. It's a song that has a lot of high energy, and it captures sort of what it was like for Wings on the Road and uh, what their live show was like. Now, this is pretty obscure, but did you notice that he's singing Helen Wheels in his unbelievable experience slash stop you don't know where she came from voice? I had no idea we'd be talking about either of those songs today, but yes, you're exactly correct. Yes. In fact, it's a little bit like the coming up voice, but not quite as hammy as the coming up voice. I mean, the, the album version of coming up, of course. Which I don't mind. I actually prefer that version of coming up, but that's getting off of the oh, plot Oh, me too, me too. But, and so did John Lennon, right? Yes, he did. He said he liked that version more than the live version, but he understood. I've heard people criticize McCartney's use of that voice and claim that he was using it to mask his ebbing vocal range. Hmm. And I don't think that's true because his vocal range wasn't ebbing back in 73, but he's using a prototype of that voice. It's just one of his voices, one of his characters he does. Yeah, he, and he puts these characters on very well. I, I don't think it's ebbing range stuff. He's still hitting no, high notes no. in the 80s. I, I, I think that's wrong. Yeah, in the late 80s. Yeah. 
that's, beautiful high notes in the late 80s. That's, yeah. that's wrong. All of that is about practice and the practice he was getting on tour with the Beatles and the practice he was getting with Wings and then the practice before the world tour in, what, 89 or 90. Yeah, I, I think that's nonsense. Yeah, he's just doing one of his voices. Anything else to say about Helen Wheels? That's about all I have to say about Helen Wheels, aside from the fact that it's a great tune. If you flip the single over, you have Country Dreamer, which we mentioned briefly. Another great tune. Fantastic tune. Great singing, great performance. Another pristine B-side, I'd say. Right there with I Lie Around. Yeah. So this was demoed in 1970, along with all those other Ram demos, right? Yeah, this is an old tune that was written for Ram, but not you, not used and not even recorded. Not recorded until 72 at Abbey Road for Red Rose Speedway. And it was, in fact, included on the double album Acetate for Red Rose Speedway. That's right. So Paul must have liked it, pulled it out to be the B-side for Helen Wheel's I don't know how much was added to it before it was released as a B-side. No, I don't know much about it either. I know I like to listen to it. It's a very simple song. And there's not really much to say about it because it's it's not given a lot of attention. And yeah, it's I don't want to say it's a middle-of-the-road country song. It's just a fine song. It's another of our examples of the uh, McCartney double octave vocal. It's interesting. We get two B-sides in a row that use the double octave vocal technique. And what... A great technique that is, especially when utilized by Paul McCartney and his, when he explodes into that high range, there really is nothing else like it. Yeah. So Country Dreamer is a great tune for Atmosphere. We will play a little bit of it here. So that brings us to 1973, a fairly huge year in the land of Beatles yore. We have an album from... What a year. Yeah. So we're talking five Beatles albums in 1973. Five Beatles albums in 73. Chris, what are those? What's the list? That would be Red Rose Speedway, Living in the Material World, Mind Games, Ringo, and Band on the Run. In addition to that, some singles. So what a year. Let's run down those albums. I mean, we've already discussed Red Rose Speedway. Do you want to talk about Living in the Material World a bit? That's uh, the famous George Harrison album. What's on that again? Yes. Well, the hit from that one would be Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth. Beautiful. And as a matter of fact, just to set the stage, why don't we play a little bit of that beautiful song? Sounds good.
Yeah, the album is a very strong follow-up to All Things Must Pass. In my opinion, George will never reach the heights of All Things Must Pass again, but those are heights few reach, so we'll give him that. Living in the Material World is a fine follow-up. The whole album is pretty strong. I have a few minor complaints. There are some songs that are a bit syrupy. There are these sort of love songs to God that get a little syrupy. Yeah, that's right. Those would be the light that has lighted the world and who can see it in particular on side A. But you have tracks like Sue Me, Sue You Blues, and that's George actually chiming in on all the bitterness with the Beatles' lawsuits and the Beatles' breakup. I think it's one of the few times he did that in such a forthright way. Do you know that track? I know that track very well. Sue Me, Sue You Blues. Yeah, I think George Harrison was most affected by the Beatles' breakup. Beatlemania wasn't fun for him. It was very stressful. I actually found a quote. It's like 72, I believe, on the on the record mirror where George says, I wouldn't really care if no one ever heard of me again. He just didn't like the fame and didn't like the stress, and it definitely comes out on that track. And it's a clever track. It manages to be bitter and clever. Uh, Don't Let Me Wait Too Long. Yes, that's a great song. That's my favorite one from this album. Fine little pop song. Beatles quality, too. Indeed. Another song I really like on that album is Be Here Now. Might not be for everybody, but it's a song about, it's rather remarkable that he had written the song All Things Must Pass, title track for the album, which might seem um, an elegy for the Beatles, but is also a song about mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. It's a song about being in the present and letting things pass. And Be Here Now is another such song. And it's so beautiful, it can almost act as a guided meditation. It's all about being in the moment and letting things pass. Well, that type of spirituality was very important to George from what 
I know about him and his songs, especially the songs in this album, the good ones, they there is a tranquil beauty to them. Like even though he is bitter, there is a beauty to it. And and what rich detail George always brought to everything, his lyrics and his guitar playing. Here, before we play the song, I'd like to read a few lines from Be Here Now. Sure. Remember now, be here now, as it's not like it was before. The past was be here now, as it's not like it was before, it was. It's a guided meditation. fundamental truths just about how time and the world works. So the album's this really strong showing from George Harrison and did quite well commercially, I believe. It went number one in a lot of places. It did not go number one in the UK. It was number two in the UK. Number one in the US, though, probably on the strength of the single, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth. Yeah, the single did quite well. The single did very well. I mean, this album was certified gold. I didn't realize that this album was as successful as it is. I thought that Everything After All Things Must Pass was kind of a bomb for George Harrison, especially because like the Dark Horse album, like he went on that tour and he couldn't sing anymore because he had that raspy voice. Yeah, yeah. Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth is number one all over the place. U.S. only went to number eight on the U.K. singles charts. That's interesting. Big hit in the U.S., <laughs> though. Very strong showing from George Harrison. Fine album. So I guess the Beatles' singles from the early part of 73 were percolating over the summer. In the fall of 73, we get another slew of Beatles records. The first of them is Mind Games by John Lennon, which came out in October of 73. This also is a very fine album and a very strong showing from John Lennon. He wrote all of his songs for this record in about a week which is really something else. Spectacular. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. He was uh, stressed out because he was, at the time, battling the United States to stay in the country. And he was so stressed that he just hid away and wrote all these tunes. And there are a lot of really good songs in this album. Mind Games, Bring on the Lucy, Free to People, Out the Blue, Only People, Meet City. I mean, this is a, this is a solid album for having been written in a week. Yes, yeah, some great little pop tracks, too. Things like I'm Sorry and Intuition. Only People you already mentioned, but it's, that's a great little pop track. Out of the Blue, I think, is Beatles quality John Lennon. Just an absolutely beautiful knockout song. 
easily one of his top five tunes post Beatles. Yeah, I would argue top 10 whole career out the blue. And I don't understand why it's overlooked. It would have made a fine single off of this album and probably would have had radio success. Interestingly, this album is listed as produced and arranged by John Lennon, so he's no longer working with Phil Spector. He's still getting a notably Spector-ish sound, I would say, a big sound. There does seem to be a lot of doubling, a lot of reverb, a dense quality to the production, sometimes maybe to a fault. It's an ambitious production all around, and the title track has real grandeur to it. I love that the slide guitars John's playing sound like a full orchestra. I mean, the overdubbed slide guitars, they really do sound like a big, almost Abbey Road production. Yeah, it's one of those John songs that maybe it's not his most sophisticated piece, but it is such a wonderful, evocative production that it always gives me a a kind of a goosebumpy feeling (laughs) when, when it first starts up.
Yeah, and it was a song that was cobbled together from tracks that had been laying around in 1969, like Beatles times. So there was a song from Let It Be titled Make Love Not War that he he sings a bit of a tag of it at the very end of the song as it's fading out. And then also there was a tune called I Promise that contains part of the melody that's on this song. I guess this album was fairly well received at the time critically, certainly seen as an improvement over some time in New York City. Certified gold in the U.S. and the U.K., and it cracked the top 10 in the U.S. at, at number 9. In the U.K., it only made it up to 13. You know, it's, it's, it's not Imagine. It's not the Plastic Ono Band. It's fine. It's good. Very, very fine album. So, next up from the Beatles in 1973, we get Ringo in November, following right on the heels of John's Mind Games. And until the anthology, the uh, last appearance of all of the Beatles on one album together. That's right. Paul's on it, George is on it, John's on it. No more than three are ever on one song at a time. Right. And But that's true of Abbey Road, right? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe not, but... <laughs> Certainly the White Album. We're, and we're not comparing Ringo to Abbey Road. <laughs> I hope not. But this is a fantastic album. If, if you're not familiar with this album, it is well worth it to get it. It's up there. It's, I think it's Ringo's best, easily. Yeah. Oh, easily. It's also a triumph for Richard Perry, who was really on a roll at the time. With Harry Nilsson, yes. Yeah, the producer with, uh, who worked with Harry Nilsson on Nilsson Schmilson, Son of Schmilson. And he went on to work with Ringo on Goodnight Vienna, which we'll discuss in our next podcast, which is a fine follow-up to Ringo, actually. So Ringo has a contribution from Paul. We should probably talk about that. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. Six o'clock in the morning You've just gone to sleep I wipe a tear from my can't be the kind of company I keep That keeps me asking You keep me asking You keep me wondering why I don't treat you Like I like to treat you Every planet in the skies in your eyes, but I don't treat you like I. No, I don't treat you like I. No, I don't treat you like I should. What do you think of this one? I think six o'clock is fine. I don't think it's. It's nothing that you need to break the bank for to track down a copy of. Right. It's maybe like a three out of five star composition. It's fine. The lyrics a little flimsy. The melody's great. Compositionally, it's a little lazy. Yeah. I can see the planets in your eyes, or I don't even know the lyrics. I'm not. I don't spin this song too often. I do like the sound of wings on the album, or at least Paul and Linda singing the background vocals. And there's a version of this song that has an extended outro where Paul is uh-huh. singing the lead. Well, I don't treat you like I, I don't treat you like I, I don't treat you like I should. Ah. That lyric in itself, which I'll send to you, Chris, and we can play on the air if you don't, if you haven't heard that. Um, I have not heard that. Yeah, Paul actually takes the lead 
He's like, you can really tell he's digging into the bass guitar. Well, I've heard a demo of it, but I don't remember it being, I remember it being three minutes or something. Yeah, this is long. It might be five or six minutes long. It's the studio version of the song, but it has an extended outro where it's basically Paul McCartney and Wings. And Ringo's just like playing the drums. (laughs) Yeah. And the whole, I don't treat you like I should, I always saw that as Paul talking to the other three Beatles, maybe about the lawsuits, maybe about just how he's been socially to them. I know Ringo and Paul got into that big fight where he was like screaming at him when Ringo came to Paul's house to push the McCartney solo album back. A lot of that stuff leaks out whether you want it to or not. I've always thought that Six O'Clock was almost a great song. Yeah. There's one moment in particular in the melody where the melody really flowers up. I'll play it right after I talk about it here where the melody really flowers up and it really sounds like it's going to turn into something beautiful. And then it just falls back on this tired sequence and ends in a very pedestrian way. And that, that sort of seems to sum up what the song does for me. Just almost gets there and then just falls back to earth. Every diamond in the skies in your eyes, but I don't treat you like a no, I don't treat you like a no, I don't treat you like a And you'll see this with Paul and Ringo throughout the rest of the time Paul and Ringo have worked together. Paul gives Ringo songs, but they're not the best songs. Pure gold or attention, although I do like attention quite a bit. It's not, they're not Wings single worthy tunes. Although they are frequently the best songs on those albums. Yes, sir. Absolutely to that. Yeah. Oh, also just Paul, I guess on this album, it's worth to mention, he does the saxophone solo and I'm doing air quotes. You can't see this because it's a podcast, but he is on a harmonica or not a harmonica, a kazoo with some wax paper, or maybe it's a comb. I don't know. Let's say it's a comb and wax paper, but he's doing the sax solo on your 16, you're beautiful in your mind. Uh-huh. Interesting. So John contributed I'm the Greatest, which is all right. It opens the album in a pretty strident way. John couldn't have sung that song. No, I can't hear John singing it. Well, I think it was really written for Ringo. John was good at writing for Ringo. Good night, Yellow Submarine. Yeah, he was great at writing for Ringo. When I was a little boy. 
So the other Beatles contributions come from George Harrison, one on the album, one as a single. The album inclusion is Photograph, and the single is It Don't Come Easy, which is often included on CD versions of this record. And those are two of Ringo Starr's best records, It Don't Come Easy and Photograph. So George really seemed to work well with Ringo to make some great pop music. Photograph has this epic quality, this big, giant, wonderful production. And it's a really affecting song. I'm not surprised it was a big hit. Let's play a little bit of that. I think it's really one of the highlights of Ringo. Anything else on Ringo? I think It Don't Come Easy is just as big of a tune as Photograph. Beatles-worthy. It's big. You know, we never played any of it in our 1971 discussions. Maybe we should play a little bit of It Don't Come Easy from 1971 by Ringo Starr. Yeah. Both great songs, great records, and pretty big hits. And since this is a Paul McCartney-related podcast, maybe we should move on from the Beatles and into Band on the Run. Indeed. So here we are, Band on the Run, Paul McCartney's Sgt. Pepper, if that makes any sense to anybody. This is an album that was certified three times platinum in the United States, platinum in Canada, platinum in the United Kingdom, 
gold in France. And in even the 2010 reissue of the album went silver in the, in the United Kingdom. This thing was number one on the charts in the UK, the US, three times in 74, and we'll get back to that in a second. Australia, Canada, the Norwegian VG Lista album chart, the Spanish album charts, and it even made it back up to number one in the US Top Pop Catalog albums in 1999 when the album was reissued. So in 1981, Bob Wolfenden described Band on the Run as the first Beatles-related release to be planned with a marketing strategy, as Capitol Records now assumed a fully active role in promoting the album following the removal of Alan Klein's ABKCO Industries as managers of Apple. Many feel that this album is one of the best Beatles solo albums, period. The three that are usually included on this list are this album, All Things Must Pass, and the Plastic Ono Band. Now, Chris, you may want to speak to this as well. When we were discussing getting ready for this podcast, we feel that a lot of the stories behind the record and the songs have been told to death, right? Ad nauseum. Yes. You know, the big difference here between Band on the Run and Ram, these two albums are now held up as the two great Paul McCartney albums. But Ram really only over the last 20 or 15 years maybe... Uh, maybe less, has accumulated a reputation as a great album. Band on the Run, on the other hand, was immediately acclaimed and has long been held up as Paul McCartney's masterpiece. So it's been well documented. It's been talked about a lot, many articles, many tributes. So it's a well-understood, well-covered album. This album was recorded in Lagos. Henry McCulloch and Denny Sywell quit the band. They had prep for the album, and the guys were like, forget this. I'm tired of dealing with Paul. They didn't feel they were getting paid well enough. And even McCulloch back in the day had said that he felt like he was in a show band. The fact that this was going on in 73 maybe is a reflection of what was already going on in the Beatles. All the frustrations yeah. George Harrison had with Paul. Speaking of George... The album, Band on the Run, was actually inspired by a phrase uttered by George Harrison during the Apple lawsuit meetings, all those business meetings, and it's, if I ever get out of here. George said this yeah. multiple times in these meetings, and Paul, true to Paul, either stuck it in his memory bank or wrote it down, yeah, this would be a great song. You know, the EMI Archive book puts a pretty light gloss on the departure of McCulloch and Sywell. Basically, Paul says... Well, we wanted to go to Africa, and two of these guys, they didn't really want to go to Africa. So we said, okay, fine, we'll go without you. Yeah. That's pretty much how he describes that, as though it was just those guys flaking out. In fact, he, they weren't getting paid that well. Sywell knew that he could make a lot more money back in New York as a session musician. McCulloch wanted to play a different kind of music and had a temper and an alcohol problem, as he says himself. You can read it in the Doyle book. The Doyle book really accounts this well. I pulled a few quotes, if you wouldn't mind me going through them, about this period. Sure. So uh, during one afternoon's rehearsal, McCartney recalls that he asked McCulloch to, and I quote, to play something he didn't really fancy playing. Then Henry argued that the part, quote, couldn't be played. Paul became rattled, and he said, I knew that it could be played, and rather than let it pass, I decided to confront him on it. So this is Paul demanding that McCulloch play some guitar solo or part that he, McCulloch didn't want to play. This guy's fed up with dealing with McCartney. Uh, Denny Sewell states, 
in Wings or with Paul, you're on call 24 hours a day. Whatever needs doing, whether it's a photo shoot or a press interviews or rehearsals or recording or a special appearance at TV shows, it just wasn't right. And the, it just wasn't right is in reference to the little that Chris mentioned that they were being paid. So these guys quit and Paul says, I got off the phone and I just thought, well, thanks. Nice. Thanks for letting me know I'm plenty of time. Then I just thought, right, we'll show you. And, you know, to Paul's credit, he did show them. This is a very high success for Paul, especially at this time when everything he was putting out was derided. That's right. Uh, One of my favorite things about this record is that when Paul got back from Africa, Len Wood, the chairman of EMI, had left Paul a note that said, Dear Paul, I understand you're taking your family to our Lagos studios. Would advise against your going there. There's just been an outbreak of cholera. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, the truth is that, okay, maybe nowadays we see Ram as a masterpiece. But at that time, prior to the release of Band on the Run, Paul McCartney's solo career looked pretty weak, both from the point of view of critics and quite a few Beatles fans. It all seemed very questionable. So his credibility was not so good prior to the release of Band on the Run. Not at all. And what's so funny is that this is Paul going back to basics. Paul McCartney plays drums in this whole album. Yeah, and plays them well. And he plays them very well. And a lot of famous drummers, as we'll see as we walk through the songs, have praised Paul McCartney's ability on the skins. So there's something sort of amazing that happens with Paul when he's faced with adversity. There's all these instances of Paul being challenged, being pushed up against the wall, and that brings out this amazing flowering in his abilities. But when he's sort of left to his own devices and he has time and money and he kind of doesn't do the best work. So we know that the album was a big hit and we know that critics loved it and it brought Paul a lot of credibility. What do you think of this album, Ryan? Uh, That's a really good question. I first interacted with this album in the 90s. I had the 99 reissue, I believe. It might have been just a remix of the 93. And I remember listening to the album and thinking Band on the Run was fantastic thinking Jet was fantastic, thinking 1985 was fantastic, and then just thinking a lot of the rest of the music was okay. Like, it was good. I didn't really understand why this was the solo album. I didn't get, like, what is the deal? And then, well, this is 10, 20 years later, whatever it is, you and I are walking through all these albums on this podcast, record by record, listening to these things in detail, pouring through the history... I completely understand why this album was praised because going through McCartney and then all the rest up to Red Rose Speedway, you're kind of like, man, this stuff is good, but it's not great. And I had this experience where I was driving to work and I had this album on the archive edition and I'm just driving down the road in California with the windows down and it's nice outside and Band on the Run's playing. At least I got through the A-side and I was just blown away how unbelievable this record was. The performances, the production, the attention to detail, realizing like, wait, Paul is playing the drums and the bass and he's singing and he's probably playing that keyboard too. It's really hard to believe. How do you feel about this album? Yeah, well, here in Chicago, I'm indoors with my uh, original pressing of Band on the Run. And I've had a great time reviewing it. Now, this record never slept for me. I got this one 
very early on. This was fifth grade or summer before fifth grade, something like that, that I got this album. I got it at the same time as Venus and Mars. So I got them together. I was sort of just lucky when I was buying my first McCartney albums as a kid that I got them in these little chronological pairs. McCartney and Ram, Wings Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, then Band on the Run and Venus and Mars. I loved it. Man, did I love it. So I loved it from the very beginning and love it today. In terms of offering my opinion on it, I would just say that I love Ram a little more, but Ram is the only one that I love more. Sometimes I even pull out Tug of War and I'm like, hmm, this, is, this might be the best one for me. But I always end up back at Band on the Run or Ram as well. So these guys, they go to, they fly to Africa. Jeff Emmerich was running the tape machines. They only had two microphones and an eight-track tape machine well, with a control desk that didn't always work. Paul and Linda were robbed at knife point. On Paul was a cassette tape of, or multiple cassettes, of the demos for this album. And they were stolen. So Paul had to remember the music and the lyrics for all the songs as they were tracking them. And he says in the archive edition of the record that he wonders what happened to those cassettes sometimes. It's amazing to think that there is a version of Band on the Run that exists out there in the world if the tapes haven't been destroyed or taped over that might be wildly different or, or just very different from what ended up recorded. Maybe that self-editing that had to come in the studio is what created the record as we know it. I'm probably going to start having dreams now about finding those tapes, listening yeah. to them. Yeah, it's like something... I, that's a wonderful idea, you know, an alternate band on the run in demo form. They may very well have ended up in a trash can somewhere, you know. Alternate verses to Mrs. Vanderbilt or who knows... Uh, maybe there was a song or two that Paul was working on that he had just caught a fragment of. Well, the whole thing put Paul in the position of having to reconstruct the songs from memory. And on top of that, to handle the full rhythm section duties. That's a tall order. Now, we're talking September 1st through September 23rd in Lagos recording Band on the Run. Not the entire album. Yeah, let's say two-thirds of the album were recorded. And then this was finished in London at Air Studios, AIR Studios. Shall we dive into track one on side one, Band on the Run, Chris? Let's do it.
A song written in 1972, recorded between September 1st and September 23rd at EMI Studios in Africa. This was a single on the record that was backed by 1985 in the US and the song called Zoo Gang, which we'll get to in the UK. The single was released 8 April 1974 in the U.S. and made it to number one. In the U.K., it was the 28th of June 1974, and it made it to number three. This is one of those songs that just about every person you're ever going to meet knows. This is a perennial favorite on classic rock radio, Band on the Run. So here we have our next McCartney Suite, three-part song, actually recorded in two different locations. So really a three-part song and a two-part record. Parts one and two were done in Africa, whereas the remainder of the record was done in London. It's interesting to note that the tapes were affected by oxidation, so it gives the whole track this distorted sound. That's how the guitars in the first couple parts sound the way they sound. Sounds great. It sounds fantastic. I got to get some oxidation on some of my tracks. Yeah. Just make sure to ship all your uh, records to Africa and back. And record them on tape in the first place, too. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, what's to say about this tune that has not already been said a million times? There's, There's no complaint about it. It was shortened for the radio release. So there are several seconds of this that were cut out from the first couple sections of the song. If I ever get out of here. One of my favorite facets of the song is the orchestral break uh, that occurs that's in a very bizarre time signature before the guitar comes strumming in on that C chord. That was fairly difficult to record from what I understand. Now I had read, I believe in the Parazzi, the band on the run portion of the song, the second half of the song, is actually sped up a bit. Yeah, I read that, that I read that as well, too. Or at least that the vocal is. I don't know if the entire track is, but the vocal is. Well, it sounds like it is. That's a very hard song to sing if you've ever tried to sing along with. And even for Paul McCartney. Yeah, because you'd be hitting, those are like high Bs or something like that. Right. It sounds great, sped up or not. Keith Moon praised the drum performance on this song. So Keith Moon, for those of you who know from The Who, is one of the most revered rock drummers of all and every time. So for Paul to get that praise on this song, that's that's a pretty big deal. As with Uncle Albert and Admiral Halsey and Live and Let Die, I find myself charmed but also perplexed to think that there was a time when a three-part song could get on the radio and be number one. 
these odd, really slightly avant-garde constructions were somehow okay with people. FM radio was different. It wasn't as... I mean, it was still single-driven, but this was a time that the Beatles created where albums became the medium. After Pepper and, you know, Zeppelin had been putting out albums, and the album was the new thing that the record industries were pushing harder than anything before. I guess the 70s is sort of the end of that sort of thing, but... Speaking of singles, track two, Jet. Capitol Records fought for this to be released as a single, despite the fact that he knew it was about McCartney's dog. The success of Jet plus the success of Band on the Run, which were already teed up from in the United States from the success of Helen Wheels, which Al also suggested to be included on the album, despite Paul McCartney's displeasure at the thought of that occurring, is what made this album as big of a success as it was. You have three major top 10 singles in the U.S. for Band on the Run on a 10-track album. This is a very catchy tune with some very strange nonsense lyrics. Oh, but they're so great, aren't they? Oh, they're great. And there does seem to be a theme at work there. I think people who've commented on the themes of freedom that run throughout Band on the Run are right about that. If you look at Jet as a song about escape, you know, jet as a verb, let's jet. I think this. I think the lyrics kind of make sense in aggregate if you think of it that way, that this is a song about getting away, about moving at high speeds. I think it works. Unless I'm mistaken, one of the first, or at least the best examples of the power pop genre I've ever heard. Like if you hadn't had Helen Wheels, I don't know if you would have had Jet. It's in the same vein as Helen Wheels and Junior's Farm. But Jet is, Jet is sweeter than Junior's Farm. Jet is less yeah. of a straight blues. I mean, it does have a somewhat pentatonic melody, but it it has a sweetness to it and a poppiness to it that I, I don't hear in songs like Junior's Farm. No, not at all. You have those uh, minor seven chords in the... And Jet, I thought that, you know, that's where that sweetness comes in. But the the rest of the song is fairly intense, especially when it drops down to, what is it? It moves up to the B or the E. Not that we should be talking theory, but the whole B section. Ah, Mater, want Jet to always love me. Jet 
So this song made it into the top 10 in the US and the UK, both at number seven. The single was released, if you're keeping score, that is uh, the 28th of January, 74 in the US, and the 15th of February in 74 in the UK. This song is praised by many people. The funniest one that I found was that Richard and Karen Carpenter called up Paul about this song after it was released, and they were like, hey, great record, man. And he was like, those are the last people I thought they would call me about this song. <laughs> but so. this is a very poppy song and a very lushly produced song. I could see the Carpenters loving it. Those yeah. gorgeous background vocals and yeah. This is a podcast, so we can't get in trouble for this. You can find it on your own. But the original single artwork is very creative and something I didn't think Paul would have done. It's a topless woman with her hands up in the air, painted silver. Yeah. And it's, you know, very edgy and progressive, especially for Paul in 73. Beautiful orchestrations on this track by Tony Visconti. Oh, yeah. He commented on the ending being a, a sax line that you, turns out you can't play on one or the other alto or tenor, I believe it is, sax. So they had to sort of splice it between two takes. And it's seamless. Um, but I wanted to say about that ending that it always reminds... It's a very British-sounding ending with the saxophone and the strings there at the end. Mm-hmm. And it always reminded me of the ending of the theme song for Are You Being Served? If I can dig it up, I'll put them side by side. You should. Just, just very Brit-pop, 70s Brit-pop sound. Paul still plays this song in concert to this day. I don't think he's ever not played this at a show. Well, I mean, maybe he has, but... How about the use of the Moog synthesizer on this song? Whether it was played by Linda or Paul, who knows? Uh, they say it's Linda, but it sounds I like Paul to me. I think it was played by Linda, yeah. But the use of synthesizer on this whole album... Paul's actually playing it. Yeah, I was just thinking of the one on Band on the Run, and it's a similar use of the Moog on Jet. Paul has always played things. Where this first showed up in the Beatles in Maxwell's Silver Hammer, all these little lines, all these like delicate little melodic motifs that are tucked away in the song. Paul is continuing to do so on this album. Band on the Run, Jet. It shows up with the organ on Let Me Roll It. Mamunia has some great synth work. Yes. So does. Actually, most of these, I would argue that all of these songs have fairly progressive use of the synthesizer, especially for 73. And it's... Absolutely. It's used as an instrument. It's not just a thing to make goofy noises. No, it's not novel. It's not spacey. It's a pop instrument. Speaking of technology, so the next track, Bluebird, features 
electronic drums. And that's a beatbox? I believe they call it a beatbox or a... I'm, I've never been sure. It's that old-timey drum yeah, My machine. grandmother's organ used to make yeah, sounds like that. That's what I was going to say. You find it on a lot of organs. Well, it works fine in the track. It works great in the track, and it probably provided Paul a bit of relief from having to do all the drum duties as he was. Late at night when the wind is still I'll come flying through your door And you'll know what love is for I'm a bluebird I'm a bluebird I'm a bluebird I'm a bluebird Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm a bluebird I'm a bluebird I'm a bluebird About this tune, Chris. I love Bluebird. Why is that? I think it's a beautiful melody. I think it's a strange record, very intimate record. It's goofy. I understand that it's goofy, but I think it's the kind of McCartney goofy that works. It's goofy in a way that's very acceptable. Like there's nothing that rubs you the wrong way, and his vocals on it, especially by the by the time they get around to like the last chorus where he's stacking this extremely high bluebird, 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 on top of everything that's going on. It's just craftsmanship, this whole song. And he uses a Denny for that highest note. Did you notice that? Is that Denny? I I always thought it was Paul. Pretty sure it's Denny. Anyway, or maybe they're doubling. Also interesting to note is that the guitar is tuned one half step down. Now, Paul's done this before. He retuned the guitar to sing Yesterday, and he does tricks like this all the time. So Has that great moment with the out-of-tune piano. Oh, you have to remind me. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't remember where that is. But it's out of tune? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's a stroke of genius. It's a fine song. I, that one's grown on me. I remember being a kid and thinking, like, this is stupid. Why don't I just listen to Blackbird? Yeah, this is yeah, the one that probably recent... shouldn't compare it to Blackbird. You almost have to. Bluebird, Blackbird. Wow. Now, this one was written in 71, right? That's right. This, this, is is the, a... this is the one song on the album that's not sort of written for the album. Which is funny. 71. I'd like to know why he didn't try recording it for Red Rose Speedway. I mean, I'm glad he didn't. Uh, he was on vacation somewhere in 71 when he wrote it, and uh, he may have forgotten about it for a while. Although I think he played it on, it, it got played a few times. I think it was almost included on James Paul McCartney in 73, right? That's right. And I think he may have played it a little around in 72. 
Okay, well, I like it a lot. You seem so so on it. I guess I buy it. The whole the whole routine. It's a bit of a character song, and I I see it as more like Rocky Raccoon in a way than like Blackbird. Don't get me wrong, Chris. I like the song fine, but you stack it up against Band on the Run or Jet. I think we need a little break in the energy after those two high intensity opening tracks before getting into Mrs. Vanderbilt, which is in its own right a pretty high intensity and pretty eccentric track. That's right. This is. This is a great song, especially the line, what's the use of worrying? What's the use of hurrying? What's the use of anything? A bit negative, a bit, uh, a bit cynical for Paul McCartney, but it's what you- I don't you... know if it's meant that way. Well, how do you figure? I think it's another song about freedom. It's about letting go of the chains of civilization. What's the use of all this stuff? Let's hmm. just go back to being primitive and simple. Well, you know, it's it's a great song. Mrs. Vanderbilt is, he, he said in an interview, I think it's very funny, because, you know, it, Miss Vanderbilt, it's just a bastardization of Vanderbilt. And he said, yeah, I knew about the Vanderbilts. They were like rich people or something. <laughs> so it's just supposed to be a, it's just supposed to be a rich person. He's sort of juxtaposing the, the rich person with all their hassles and cares with the person who just says the hell with it all. Coming from the guy that is... Yeah, Grab, yeah. Grabbing I guitars know. out of people's hands. You know, I, th- I find that funny. Uh-huh. But yeah, this is a good tune. The ho, hey, ho part. It's, there's a lot of hooks, a lot of melodic fun on this album. And yeah, the most interesting part about this song is how it ended up as a big hit in Ukraine. And when Paul played this tune, or he went to play in Kiev in 2008, there was like a poll, like what song you want to hear. And this was the song that was what everybody wanted. And he played the song and the whole crowd sang it back to him. It's just so interesting how this whole album has affected the world in ways yeah, that we may not songs. even. Yeah, of all the tunes. Down in the jungle, living in a tent. <laughs> don't even know the time, but I don't mind. See, it's a song about freedom. It's another of the freedom themed songs on the album. I think it is a concept album in that sense. I've been sold on that themes of freedom idea in yeah. Band on the Run. Unless you have anything else to say about that track, that leads us to the massive monster closer of the A-side, Let Me Roll It. Now that's a great record. Do you think this is Paul consciously doing John? I do not. I buy what Paul says about it, that 
They could sort of do each other's styles, but their styles were each other's styles in a way, too. So, no, I think that Paul was just doing his thing, and, and on this occasion it resembles John's thing, and not much more than that. Yeah, I've never heard the John Lennon connection that everybody talks about, aside from the fact... The, the double, the, yeah, the slap back on the vocal is sort of John-ish. There's a little bit about the pinched way that Paul's singing it that's kind of John-like. And, of course, that guitar sound is very much like a John guitar riff. And John ends up even like stealing that a bit for his tune Beef Jerky on Walls and Bridges, if I'm remembering correctly. Consciously, yes. I also, let me say something else. You know, this song has been interpreted as some kind of a peace offering to John. Let me roll it to you. I always thought this song was clearly not about this, that it was about starting a relationship with someone, a a romantic relationship with someone. Paul says that it's actually... Yes, that, but also friendship, as in, let me roll a joint for you. Let yeah. me roll it. I buy that much more than the John thing. I don't I think buy just, the John It's at just all. Paul stumbling into a John-ish style, and the song is about what it's about, romance and rolling joints. Yeah, there's like a bunch of songs in John's solo career where you could be like, oh, John's doing Paul. Sure. I just don't think that's the case, though, because there's even instances. Yeah, they came up together. Yeah. They formed each other's styles, you know? Like, just because John's singing Julia, that doesn't mean he's doing a Paul song. It's just his take on what they were doing at the time. You gave me something I understand You gave me love in the palm of my hand I can't tell you how I feel My heart is like a wheel Let me roll it Let me roll it to you Let me roll it Let me roll it to you Well, that's the, that's the A-side of Band on the Run. Fairly quick, but five massive tunes in a row yeah a very very fine first half of this record nearly no complaints no complaint actually i would say no complaints everything is everything is great no complaints from me so you flip that record over and you are faced with mamunia one of the strongest songs on this album at least in the second tier of the songs after the singles the organic synthesizer work at the end that I had already mentioned, the lyric, all the whole lyrics are actually some of Paul's finest lyrics if you really dig them up and take a look at them. So the next time you see LA rain clouds, don't complain, it rains for you and me. What a great line. Yeah, I like it. It's a beautiful song about rain. I know that the title is taken from a hotel in Morocco, where they stayed, but it doesn't seem to be about that hotel, or if it is, it's it's so cryptic I can't tell. Seems to be a celebration of rain, and I think it's I think it's quite nice. Yeah, it's it's rain rebirth. It's that same freedom yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, run out in the rain, take off your plastic mac. Which the plastic macs, by the way, that's the name of the band that Paul is in in the coming up music video. It's on the. Tr- 
the bass yeah. drum of the drummer. I think that very English usage there, though, by the way, is is significant. You know, with the freedom theme, it's stuffy Englishman with a plastic Mac on. You know, throw it away, go out in the rain. You've never felt it until you felt it running down your back. That's 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 great. It's a really that's really a strong line. song. Yeah. good lyrics from Paul. As you said, some very good synthesizer work on this song. Maybe we should highlight that a bit. Yeah, especially the little melodic turn at the near the end. Please. Next track is No Words. Two minutes and 33 seconds. It's the shortest song on the record and might be one of the sweetest. It's a great, great song. And you know what else? It's a Denny Lane song. Good for you, Denny. You made it. Yeah. Well, we talked in our Red Rose Speedway podcast about the fact that this beautiful song, I Would Only Smile, got left off of Red Rose Speedway in favor of lesser material. So it's nice to see No Words make its way onto the album. And in such a lush treatment, it has a string quartet, it has beautiful background harmonies, great guitar work. You wanna give your love away and end up giving nothing. I'm not surprised that your black eyes are This is the most 70s sounding song on this record. Maybe that's why I like it so much. That was it, the saxophones and the orchestrations and the way the vocal, it's almost a Bee Gees record, almost. It's not quite Paul, 
It's the same feeling I get of the Denny Lane songs on Back to the Egg or from London Town, but it's the best version of any of those. Easily the best yeah. Denny Lane song we have from the Wings canon. Definitely. And how about that that bridge where they're just climbing up the range? Just, you're, you're burning love and they're just... I, I, whatever that's note, right. I feel like that's the highest note either of them ever, ever sang. Yeah, that's the part that was added by Paul, too. Musically, it's basically Denny's song, except for the middle section, and then the lyrics are mostly Denny's, except for a few tweaks by Paul and the middle section. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I actually, I'm going to admit this on air. In L.A., I was listening to Breakfast with the Beatles a few months ago. And they were like, Denny Lane's going to be at McCabe's Guitar Store tonight. I drove my car an hour out to Santa Monica. I got to witness Denny Lane perform this song and a few other songs off Band on the Run with a full band. And he even had like a left-handed bass guitarist that sort of looked like Paul, but not. It was amazing. It definitely reminded me of why this is really deserving of the Band on the Run track list, because it's as good as any of the other songs Paul wrote on this album. It's one of my favorites on the album. It's one of my go-to tracks. All in under three minutes, too. It's amazing. on to Picasso's last words. Now everybody knows the story behind this song, and I'll tell it briefly. Paul McCartney is on vacation in Jamaica, and Dustin Hoffman is there shooting Papillion with Steve McQueen. They're having dinner, Paul, Linda, Dustin Hoffman, and his wife. And there's a Time article, Pablo Picasso's Last Days and Final Journey. Dustin's like, how do you write songs? And Paul's like, well, I write them like this, and he pulled out his guitar. And using the Time article, just starts singing, drink to me, drink to my health. And Dustin says, Annie, Annie, he's doing it. He's writing it. La, da, da. <laughs> it's a goofy story. How do you feel about all that, It's Chris? a goofy story. It's a very typical Paul McCartney story. Paul, as we know, can just sort of pick up a guitar and start writing something. And, and when he talks about that, he says, yeah, I knew there, I had some chords that I went ahead and just played because I knew I couldn't go wrong with them and just started singing whatever came to mind. And I suppose it became a song because it was that moment. Otherwise, it would have been Paul McCartney sitting around with his guitar humming to himself and might not have become a song. I think it actually says a little something about the arbitrary nature of, of McCartney's songwriting, that his, his gift is so abundant that any given doodle could maybe be made into something. And in this case, he made it into quite something. It's quite the song. It's not the best song on the album, but it's 
It's a fine tune. It's another song that has a mini sweet quality too. And that is what saves the record, I think. I think you you have like a high middle tier McCartney tune, but then there's this section where Paul's doing what Picasso did, or so he claims, where it's the song, but through different filters with this amazing, as Paul says, plummy. Play it more plummy, as was his instruction, the bassoon Mm -hmm. melody. Mrs. Vanderbilt shows back up. Jet shows back up. There's a version of them drunk singing the song. It's very creative. I think it makes a great transition to get us into the end of the album. By itself, maybe it's not so interesting, but it's, or or maybe the song itself's not so interesting, but given this treatment and put in this location on the album, I think it's quite nice. Agreed. Even a bit of a treat, maybe at that point, to do something a little zany. That's the song that ties everything back up, and you're like, oh yeah, this is the guy that was in the Beatles. This is the guy that can pull this sort of thing off. As you said, this is the song that slides us right into the last track on the album, the mighty 1985. One mighty hell of a song, if I'm allowed to say that. Okay, well, we might differ a little on this one. Oh, this you is don't... the one-week spot on the album for me. Whoa, how so? I just can't get enough of your sweet stuff. My little lady gets behind. It's, it's a little bit of chopping broccoli to me, this song. <laughs> it's a little like Dear Friend in a way. It's repetitive, has lyrics that don't make any sense, that seem portentous, but then descend into My Little Lady Gets Behind. And I admit it's a great production. It's, it's an interesting record, but I'm not sure it's a great song. It's an amazing production. And yes, it's fine. Lyrically, is it about anything? No. But Paul says that. He states that. <laughs> He's like, sometimes you just have a first line. And he was walking around or playing the piano and singing that line. It's the catharsis that comes from playing those piano riffs, singing the nonsense. It is just like Dear Friend, where Paul is, it's like self-therapy. He's not singing that song for anybody but himself. But in this one, he's just guns a-blazing. Yeah, I do agree. In terms of pacing, it's a, it's a great ending for the album. It's got the right pace, it's got building energy. It works really well that way. My favorite part of the song actually is the little break where we get the uh, stacked background harmonies. And with the organ at the top. 
boring. Yeah, yeah. And if I was listening to this, you know, the other day, when we talked about some people never know, we were pretty complimentary of the background harmonies. They're well composed and they're sung earnestly, but the truth is they're pretty sour at times. They're a little out of tune and a little amateurish at times. Those background vocals, as pretty as they are, on some people never know. Yeah. And when you listen to the polished quality of the, you know, vocal of the sort of Carpenter's style stacked harmonies here, it's really quite impressive. They've come quite a long way in two years. keep coming back to this sense of freedom. Paul's lost the two people that were maybe even holding him back. They were acting more as support structures in the beginning, but maybe Henry and Denny, Denny S were holding him back and now they're gone. He's got Denny Lane, who is a very competent and solid musician, good singer. He's got Linda. Linda's finally stepping up her game. If she really is playing most of the synthesizer parts, like she's doing one hell of a job. This is just them capturing that feeling and having fun in the studio. To your point, not a song, not a great song, even though I think that opening line is, all the lyrics I think are hilariously amazing. Yeah, I think orally and in terms of mood and pacing, it's a great ending for Band on the Run. And how about the just the very, very ending, the bum, 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 I can't think of another album that has this in Paul McCartney's canon, like such a definite album that then abruptly stops, almost like a day in the life, and then Band on the Run comes back in to bring you full circle. Yeah. There are a lot of similarities between this album and Red Rose Speedway and just like in terms of pacing and how it all ties itself back together again. Red Rose Speedway is nine songs. Uh, this album without uh, Helen Wheels is nine songs. It ends with sort of these medleys. If you're combining Picasso's last words and the tricks done on 1985, just like Hold Me Tight, Lazy Dynamite, etc. We would not have had Band on the Run and we would not have had Live and Let Die during this time had we not had everything else, especially Red Rose Speedway. I do notice that we're sort of missing the country element on this album. Yes, or it's been relegated to the B-sides, Country Dreamer and I Lie Around. So it's hanging on. But he's pushed it away. He's back in London. But this album's a lot more rock and roll and folk and pop. Which is probably why it has such a long-lasting appeal and had an immediate appeal. When the album was number one, what it was fighting against, just so we can have some context now that we're just about at the end of the album. Oh, yeah. So April 13th, 74, Band on the Run's number one. April 20th, number one was John Denver's Greatest Hits. The week after, April 27th, Chicago's Seven. The next time there was a number one on the charts was May the 4th, and that was the Sting soundtrack. 
as that Paul Newman, Robert Redford movie. So that's The Entertainer. and That's right. Then about a month later on June 8th, Band on the Run is number one again. Mm-hmm. Followed by June 22nd, Gordon Lightfoot's album Sundown hits number one, which is beaten by Band on the Run on July 6th. And then Band on the Run is finally knocked out by Elton John's Caribou. I don't know if you know that album very well, but that's a fine record also. So you have all of these soft rock albums that Paul's competing against. So of course, from at least those albums that we've listed, you could argue that Band on the Run is the most heavy hitting in terms of rock. So here's a bit of press on Band on the Run. Charles Murray of the NME wrote, the ex-Beatle least likely to reestablish his credibility and lead the field has pulled it off with a positive masterstroke of an album entitled Band on the Run. That's fairly glowing praise. He goes on to say, And in addition to praising McCartney for using the synthesizer like an instrument, as both you and I mentioned, not like an electric whoopee cushion, Band on the Run is a great album. If anybody ever puts down McCartney in your presence, bust him in the snoot, and play him this. He will thank you for it afterwards. John Landau of the Rolling Stone states, with the possible exception of Lennon's Plastic Ono Band, the finest record yet released by any of the four musicians who were once called the Beatles. The awards this album got, Rolling Stone chose Band on the Run as Album of the Year for 1974. In 1975, Paul McCartney and Wings won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo, Group, or Chorus for this album. In 1975, Jeff Emmerich won a Grammy Award for Engineering Band on the Run. It goes without saying, this is a great record. If anybody gives you crap about liking Paul, punch him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and hand him a copy of this album. I would say maybe along with Ram, but yeah, I actually feel like I've done that a few times, you know, um, figuratively at least, that I've had an argument with someone and said, you will too like this album and given them Ram or given them Band on the Run and they've come back. Okay, yeah, that's actually pretty good. So anyway, to wrap up the Band on the Run discussion, I I think we agree it's a great album and would encourage anyone to look into the the wonderful EMI archive edition, either the CD, which is great, the double CD version, or especially that great big box, uh, well, really the big book. Those are just fantastic. Absolutely. Since you are mentioning that, maybe it's worth it to note as we wrap this up, um, the song Zoo Gang which was recorded April 25th, 1973 at Abbey Road and then finished at EMI in Paris. This was the title of a British TV serial. Sir Lou Grade, who worked for ATV, asked Paul to write the main theme. So why don't we end the show with a bit of the theme from Zoo Gang, which is a unique track. Yes, it is. You've been listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Next up, Venus and Mars. Take care.
Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.